0: Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So Esther was born at Legacy Emmanuel, and then uh, the way it works is as soon as the birth is done and everything is pretty good to go then they wheel you straight from uh, the delivery room to Randall Children's Hospital, which, as I think we all know, is a beautiful hospital. It's new. Uh, it's wonderful. And uh, the two hospitals are connected, so you never go outside. So it's kind of surreal because you go through this... Well, I don't, didn't personally go through this, but you go through this uh, event of giving birth. I was there, though, so it was still quite an experience. And then... Um, you're wheeled to this beautiful, nice room, but it's not really like anything you've ever been to before. Uh, and the rooms there are just amazing. And they have these huge windows, and we got there, and it was more it was the middle of the day by the time we got there. And uh, it was May, 31st. And uh, the sky was like the bluest it had been all year it felt like, and the trees below us were like this bright green. It almost looked unreal. And then we were there for two days, and it was just like being in another world. Like, this crazy event had happened, and then we weren't in our old home anymore, and we were in this place, and there were nurses, and there was a new life. Um, and it was, it was just, like, surreal. And probably some of you have experienced that. Um, but for all the glory that is Randall Children's Hospital, there was one thing, one area where they were severely lacking one fault I could not abide, and that was that their coffee was just really bad, (laughs) obviously. Uh, You don't really go to a hospital for the coffee. And so um, that morning, the first morning, um, I got this opportunity to go check out a new coffee shop I hadn't been to yet, just down the street, Um, and it was so weird to get outside and people were just walking their dogs or driving to work or going to the newest Portland coffee shop. As if the world was the same, it had always been. Uh, But for me, the world was totally different, totally turned upside down. And uh, so I got in line and after a few minutes, it was my turn to order. I couldn't resist, I was just beaming and I was like, I just had a baby. (laughs) And the, the guy taking my order is like 20 or something. And um, he looked at me, and if there was any emotion in his eyes, it was like a little bit of pity. (laughs) And he was like, oh, congrats. And I was like, oh, congrats? Like, that's all you can muster? Um, So I didn't go back to that coffee shop for a while. (laughs) I've been back since, and I haven't seen him, so maybe I wasn't the only person that he uh, wasn't the best with. But Whenever we have huge life events happen... uh, it's hard to believe for us that the world keeps on going the same way it always has. I know that some of you have experienced that with babies. Others of you have experienced it with marriage or uh, getting a degree or changing jobs or moving or all kinds of transitions, right? Um, we have these life-changing events and they, they, they can also be uh, more negative life-changing events as well. Um, a life-threatening diagnosis, or the death of a family member, or a divorce, or uh, falling out with someone that you're close to. Whatever it might be, there are these events that change everything, that alter our lives forever, um, but the world just keeps on spinning, right? Um, well, last Sunday we celebrated Easter, and we are now in the Easter season, where we kind of spend some time trying to figure out What Easter means, because you can't just tackle that in a day. We really spend our whole lives trying to figure out what Easter means, but especially in this church season, we are talking um, about Easter. Uh, We're talking about the resurrection of Jesus, who the Christian scriptures and Christian tradition uh, down through the centuries have identified as the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, And with his resurrection, those same scriptures and traditions have claimed that the world, the past, present, and future, have been changed. Not just our individual lives or our individual futures, but the life and future of the entire cosmos. The world continues to operate in much the same way to the naked eye. But in reality, we believe that new life has been born, and all life is changed. The Gospel of John says very early in the beginning, what has come to being in Jesus was life, and that life was the light of all people. With the arrival of Jesus, a new kind of life was made available to all. Last Sunday, we shouted, Alleluia! And we proclaimed that death had been swallowed up in victory, And most of the world looked at us with a little bit of pity in their eyes and said, congrats. Because while it's a nice story, it doesn't sound very realistic. Like Bree and me right after Esther was born, we believe that the whole world has changed, but most of the world continues to live like nothing happened. This seemed especially true this week, as we heard first about over 300 people killed in Sri Lanka, Many of them are Christian siblings um, going to Easter service. And then yesterday we learned that there was a shooting at a synagogue um, in California as people celebrated the Passover. And so as these communities came together to celebrate life in both cases, the resurrection for the Christians, the story of the angel of death passing over the people of Israel, and Egypt uh, for the Jewish community. They were met with death by those from outside. So we are those people that are proclaiming resurrection, but all around us, people are dying. And that's a hard place to be in. Sometimes our scriptures can seem too dualistic for our postmodern mind. Sometimes we have to be careful about how we read them because if they're taken the wrong way, uh, they seem to promote exclusion and tribalism and the very things that we think Jesus was against. But I have to say that sometimes I understand why Jesus and his followers after him who wrote the New Testament drew a line in the sand. It's not about your tribe versus my tribe or uh, my club versus your club or whatever it might be. But this is about good versus evil. It's about the kingdom of God versus the empire. Scripture is very clear, and Jesus was very clear, that we can follow Jesus in the way marked by love and hope and faith and peace and humility and compassion. Or we can follow in the ways of the world, the ways of empire marked by hate and domination and violence, and greed, and cynicism, and pride, and selfishness, and fear. Basically, we can believe in the power of life, or we can believe in the power of death. And the question is, where does our faith lie? I'm very excited that we will be in the book of Revelation for the next, well, for six Sundays, including this Sunday. And Revelation seems like one of those dualistic books. That's because the Christians that John is writing this letter to um, know something about proclaiming resurrection in the face of death. They know something about choosing uh, which path they're going to take. And actually, they know it much better than we do because um, like us, they are Easter people. Like us, they have placed their faith in Jesus But they aren't just watching persecution on the TV. They are the ones being persecuted. And it's beginning to seem to them like maybe God isn't all that powerful. Maybe there are other powers that have more authority than God. Maybe they're wrong about Jesus. Maybe death is actually more powerful than life. Maybe violence, not peace, is the answer. Specifically, they're concerned with Rome, who was their world power at the time. The ones who crucified Jesus, the ones who John refers to in our reading today as those who pierced him. Rome seems to be the dominant kingdom, not the kingdom of God. Caesar, not Christ, seems to be the king of kings. The vision that John has received, though, and written down in this book that we're all so scared to read called Revelation... Uh, John assures his readers and us that God is, in fact, the ruler of all and that God's victory was accomplished through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Now, you might be thinking, "Mm, what? Revelation is all about the end times and weird beasts coming out of the sea and dragons. Um, Isn't Revelation about the end of the world? And it kind of is, but like not really the way that we have... Come to be told that it is it's true that there is a certain focus on the future in revelation our reading this morning for example in one part says look he is coming with the clouds every eye will in the future see him even those who pierced him and on, on his account all of the tribes of the earth will wail so it is to be so it isn't that way yet it is to be amen So John does look to the future, that's true. But his concern, his primary concern, is not the future, but the present. He wants our understanding of the future to shape how we live in the present. The book of Revelation is an apocalypse. In fact, the very first word of the book in Revelation uh, is translated revelation, but it is actually apocalypse. And apocalyptic literature isn't all about the end times, It's all about uncovering. That's what apocalypses do, they uncover. It's often misunderstood as simply being about some cataclysmic end-of-time event, but while the future often plays an important role, the emphasis is not on the future, but on the present. The goal is to reveal, to uncover, the truth. But so often the truth goes beyond words. It's too heavy for our language. So the author has to resort to symbols and imagery meant to move us beyond just thinking and understanding, beyond linear reasoning and simple comprehension. Apocalypse, revelation, is meant to hit us in our guts. It's meant to evoke emotion. We're supposed to feel the words. We're supposed to be carried away by the imagery. We're meant to be swept up. In the story. That's why everyone gets all weird about Revelation, because it's supposed to do that. It's supposed to make you feel things. So, what is this truth that Revelation is trying to get at? What is the truth that Revelation is trying to uncover? It's trying to uncover the truth that despite evidence to the contrary, God reigns now and God will reign in the future. That God is the first and the last, the Alpha and the omega, the one who is and who was and who is to come. Revelation asserts that God's victory ultimately took place in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And it promises that Jesus will one day come again, not take all the good Christians away, but Jesus will come to earth and make God's reign ultimate and undeniable. That death will finally be defeated, as we heard last week that there will be no more pain or crying or mourning, that what God has done in Jesus, God will do for all of creation, which is resurrection. So Revelation presented its original readers and us with a future hope, but also a decision to make. Will we live according to the future promise in the book of Revelation? A future where God reigns, where victory is accomplished not through violence, but through peace, not through slaughter, but through the lamb who was slaughtered, where death is that great enemy is finally defeated, or will we choose instead to align ourselves with the powers of this age? Will we place our hope in the crucifiers and not the crucified? Ultimately, who do we believe reigns? Where do we place our trust? John presents Jesus as an example of one who has trusted in God's reign for his whole life. Jesus trusted in the reign of God and not the reign of worldly kingdoms. And John encourages us and his readers uh, to follow Jesus' lead. The book of Revelation contains what one scholar called a shared Christology, which sounds kind of fancy. Well, that's the idea that we share in Jesus' fate. Jesus is what we will be. We participate now in the life of Christ. And this idea isn't just in Revelation, it's throughout the New Testament. From our reading from 1 Corinthians 15 last week, we heard that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have died. The first fruits. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. come after. Christ first, then us. And the author of Hebrews calls Jesus the pioneer of our salvation and a forerunner on our behalf. So there's this idea throughout the New Testament that Jesus goes ahead of us like some kind of trailblazer, blazing the way. And because Jesus has gone on that trail, Jesus will walk with us as we continue down the same trail. We are becoming what he already is. And so much of the early church's correspondence, these letters back and forth that we get to read, is about how we can follow the historical Jesus' example uh, while being accompanied by the living Christ who who walks with us. And so in verse 5 of our reading this morning, John identifies three characteristics of Jesus that we can share in, either in the present or the future or both. He says that Jesus was a faithful witness. He says that Jesus was the firstborn among the dead. And he says that Jesus was the ruler of the, is the ruler of the kings of the earth. So first, a faithful witness. John says that um, John first identifies Jesus as a faithful witness. At surface level, this refers to the way that Jesus always acknowledged the reign of God over the worldly powers. In his day, that worldly power, as I mentioned, was Rome. You might remember in John 19, Pilate is shocked that Jesus won't answer his questions, and Pilate says, do you refuse to speak to me? Do you not know that I have the power to release you and the power to crucify you? But Jesus responds, you would have no power over me unless it had been given to you from above. Jesus is confident that there is always an authority over the worldly powers, and that that is God. And ultimately, this is what gets him in trouble. This is what gets him killed. He refuses to obey or to uh, acknowledge the authority of the worldly powers, and instead says that God ultimately has the power. And this might be a good time to note that this word witness, the Greek word, is martis. And martyrs will come to mean martyr. And already in this, uh, like at the time that John was writing the Revelation, martyr was become, or witness was becoming synonymous with martyr. Jesus' witness to the reign of God led to his martyrdom. For those of us who don't face death on a regular basis, that seems kind of an intimidating call to be a witness if witness means martyr. But for John's audience, there already had been martyrs. People were being killed for their faith, and by referring to Jesus as a faithful witness, he assures his audience that those who have been killed were in good company. Jesus himself was a faithful witness, even to the point of martyrdom. The next uh, identifier John has for Jesus is that he is the firstborn of the dead. Jesus and we will be raised. Lastly, John identifies Jesus as the ruler of the kings of the earth. Because Jesus has shown himself faithful to the point of death and been raised, the firstborn of the dead, God, in the words of Philippians 2, has highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. It isn't in spite of Jesus' faithful witness, but precisely because of it, that Jesus becomes the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now you might be wondering, well, how do we fit into that if we have, if these are three identifiers that we're supposed to be able to uh, live into? And if you look at the verses that follow uh, verse 5, John says, "...to him who loved us, Jesus, and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom." Priests serving his God and Father. In the future that Revelation anticipates, those who are faithful witnesses will get to reign with God in some way. Not as power-hungry tyrants, but as those who have shown themselves to follow in the way of Jesus, who was himself, again, not the crucifier, but the crucified. Not the violent one, but the one who refused to be violent. This week, like many of us, I was heartbroken to hear about the bombings in Sri Lanka. But my heartbreak was only intensified when I read that now there are mobs of Christians. Christians attacking innocent Muslim families. I read one story of a man who was at home with his children and a mob of Christians, which seems like can't really comprehend, a mob of Christians. The mob is who came to crucify Jesus, right? Christians don't form mobs, we shouldn't. They came to his house, and he and his children ran out the back door, but they still got chased down, and he was beaten in front of his kids. This is precisely what the book of Revelation does not want. But this is always the temptation that lies before us. We're tempted to trust in the power of death and not the power of life. We're tempted to give up on the hallmarks of the kingdom of God, hope, peace, love, joy, forgiveness, and turn instead to the hallmarks of the kingdoms of this world, despair and violence and hate and anger and retribution. Revelation tells us to trust in the reign of God and the way of Jesus. Revelation tells us to trust the new life that we have in Christ, to believe that Easter has changed everything. Amen.